Wonderful, profound truths we have in the Word of God that we have just sung, and if we are turning in our Word for Romans chapter 6, we will get a bit more of a glimpse of this profound life that we have in Christ. Romans chapter 6, we'll be looking at the first 14 verses this morning. If you will now follow along in hearing or the reading of the Word of God beginning at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Or as the King James would say, God forbid. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection." knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its in it and its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are for what you have done for us in thy great salvation choosing us before the foundation of the world in Christ, for loving us in Christ, for sending your only begotten Son that in him we might have life, and as he took upon our sin, died upon the cross of Calvary, our sin was once and for all buried and our old man with him in the grave. And now as you have raised him up the third day, having been satisfied with all of the good and righteous work that he has done, you have cloaked us in the righteous garment of of Christ and his righteousness. And you have given us life in him. And how thankful we are for this new life and all that it entails. Thank you for the Spirit of God which applies these very truths to our life and brings forth the needed faith to receive them and to apprehend them and to enjoy them and to declare them and to reckon them to be true, who is the seal unto the day of our final redemption, a guarantee of our resurrection where Christ is our first fruits. We thank you for this life, this heavenly life that you have given to us so freely of grace. We pray that we would this day understand these truths and the Spirit would direct our hearts, that we would stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has set us free, not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage to sin or its dominion or power, for it has been broken and its chains are released. and We have nothing to fear. And so we pray that our lives would be consistent with these objective truths that you have declared. And we pray you would strengthen our faith and give us faith to believe the things that are before us here on this written page 
that you have said are so. Be glorified in this time together as you bring forth the fruit that would glorify your name from all of our lives. Lord, if there's one here today that does not know you experientially, we pray that you would bring that wayward sinner into the fold, remove the blinders from his or her eyes that he might see with his heart the glory of the risen Christ. For anyone here that is struggling in their identity and knowing who they are, what their purpose in life is, or who struggles with fear or intimidation or a besetting sin in their life, we pray this day that you'd bring greater clarity to the answer and bring faith to apprehend Christ in his glory. And strengthen us all in him, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This particular text has been used by some people to show that only immersion into water is the only true picture of which baptism is. I grew up in this particular worldview and in this particular understanding, and every time we saw someone baptized, this passage was quoted as the act of the minister would then take the baptism candidate and say, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, as we would then immerse and bring forth. But even I, as a Baptist minister, before I became a Presbyterian minister, even as a Baptist, I looked at this passage more carefully, and I could not even subscribe to that particular view as a Baptist. There are a number of reasons why that is true, but particularly and exegetically from the text, which we'll just get into in a moment, but the custom for the burial in Paul's day was not burying bodies down into the ground, but laying them into tombs. And so the picture of immersion, I do not believe, is one of laying someone into the grave out of which they would then come. I don't think that would be in the first century minds as it would be in our minds today, perhaps. But if you've grown up in that particular paradigm, it's a hard one to shake. It's hard to see, uh, really, the, the passage for what it is before us. I confess that was difficult for me as well. But holding on to a paradigm like this can actually obscure the passage from the very rich and deep meaning of the teaching, which is far, far, far more than a mode of baptism. The passage is teaching a profound truth of our union with Christ. Three times, baptism is mentioned in verse 3 and verse 4. Verse 3, baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death. Verse 4, buried with him through baptism into death. But the explanation is given what it's talking about in verse 5. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. The word for is a word of explanation. I am now explaining to you what I mean here. And as the Apostle Paul explains this baptism, it explains it in terms of our union with Jesus Christ. And that's what the passage is about. It's about our union with Jesus Christ. It's coming off of the, the high water mark of Scripture in Romans chapter 5 where we have been united together in Christ as our new federal head and who is spiritually united together with us have taken us out of Adam and now placed us into Jesus Christ. 
And while our baptism identifies with this truth of our union with Jesus Christ, immersion does not picture it, nor does water affect it. I'm going out on a limb here when I say that our understanding, and I don't think I'm on a limb here, but our understanding of our union with Jesus Christ is the key, the key ingredient to our sanctification. Not a key, the key to the ingredient of our sanctification. Yet so many few people or Christians understand it. So few pulpits have preached it, and so few people have actually heard it. But if we do not understand who we are in Christ, and the depth and the richness and the breadth of that, we will not be able to consciously or deliberately take advantage of its truth. So many Christians who are actually united with Christ through faith struggle with burdens of guilt, struggle with doubts, struggle with intimidation, struggle with fear, or a besetting sin that they cannot or seemingly cannot overcome. In essence, what so many Christians struggle with is an identity crisis. And if you do not think about your identity in the right way, all kinds of difficulties emerge in the way you live, the way you think. The world is full of illustrations currently of such a problem. So much so I don't even have to tear a page out of the daily news to show you daily the changes that are going out with identity crisis. But God does not want us to have an identity crisis. Understanding our union with Christ is the key to our process and our progress of sanctification. Right thinking about the gospel produces right living. Right thinking produces right living. The way you think will emerge in the way you live. We can think about this in the right way. And when we do, we're on the right road that will take us to new heights of understanding and to new appropriation of sanctification and new experiences with God and new freedoms that you have not yet experienced. So as we consider the passage before us, it is my hope and my prayer that, that the Lord will use this passage today and for the rest of your life to help you to understand who you are in Christ Jesus. I want to first look at all, first we can look at, from verses 1 through 5, we have to know that our, we have to know this union with Christ by experience, and that's what verses 1 through 5 is about. But then we have to understand, or we have to reckon it to be so, and that's what verses 6 through 11 is about. And then we have to live it out in obedience, and that's what the whole conclusion of this section is about in verses 12 through 13. But the first thing Paul has to do here is he has to straighten up some wrong-headed thinking, and that's what he does in verses 1 and 2. And the reason he does this is because where Paul had just left off the passage in Chapter 5, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid that we should think that way. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now, why would someone even think about asking that kind of question? Because it comes right off of the verses in verse 5 and verse 20 
Moreover, the law entered that sin, that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying here that no matter how large the sin issue is and how much it's overspread the banks of the river, grace has all the much more flooded the area so that grace all the more covers the sin. Now one could naturally and logically and reasonably conclude that which Paul is alluding to in verse 1. Well, if, if then grace abounds where sin is abounded, should we not sin all the more that grace can abound all the more? Now that conclusion is logical, that conclusion is reasonable, but that conclusion is heinous. Now because the natural reasoning of man can actually conclude this logically, Paul presents this as a rhetorical question to show how absurd the conclusion is. But if Paul were not preaching grace right up on that knife edge, one would not be able to conclude that particular conclusion. Oftentimes, we don't preach it all the way up to here because we're afraid that someone will conclude something just like what Paul mentions in verse 1. Well, that's the wrong thing to do. We can't hedge the truth because we're afraid of how someone's going to conclude it, but we can't anticipate, like Paul did, how the natural mind thinks. And here's a principle for you and me to always remember. Natural thinking always perverts the truth. Natural thinking always perverts the truth. There's a way that we can think naturally apart from faith that perverts the truth and will be incorrect. Even though that conclusion can be reasonable, even though that conclusion can be rational, even though that can be logical, the conclusion will be wrong and pervert the truth. The conclusion can be far from the will of God, and as it is here, it is exactly the opposite of what the spiritual conclusion is to be. Right thinking that produces right living will only come through faith. And as Augustine says, faith precedes understanding, not the other way around. So the natural thinking, the natural man, thinks incorrectly and it will always pervert the truth. I think it was just this morning that Jay sent a, a link about now that some of the new uh, visuals are coming in from the telescope, that the astronomers are going, ah. They're exasperated because of the things that they are seeing seem to completely contradict their theory of the Big Bang since they have held to since the 1930s. For almost 90 years, they've held to a particular theory based upon some particular evidence, and now they're seeing something different because natural thinking always perverts the truth. Well, God doesn't want us to think naturally, therefore he's given us the revelation and given us the faith to understand, but he wants us to be really clear about it, and so he's going to teach us in verse 3 and through 5 of our union with Jesus Christ, and our union with Jesus Christ must come by a knowledge of experience. Or do you not know that as many of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? This kind of knowledge, or do you not know, he's questioning us here, is, is the, the, a knowledge of experience. And what Paul is saying here is not affected by water baptism. It is not pictured by immersion. I have no problem with immersion. I have no problem with pouring. I have no problem with sprinkling. 
That's not the point, because that's not what it's addressing here. He teaches us the implication of what it means to be mystically united with Christ. Mystically and spiritually united with Christ. When I mean mystical, I mean the sense that we do not understand it. We cannot bring it to reason to the place where we comprehend the fullness and understand it. That's simply what I mean. Just like the two natures of Christ in his one person, that's mystical. We don't understand it. The scripture informs us that we are somehow attached to him. In verse 4, therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For, explaining here, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. In some way, we are actually in him. I can't explain that. But I do know the Gospel of John, when it speaks about believing in him, it's, it's not believing in something about him. It's not believing of something about him to be true. It is believing into him. It is almost like you're believing into something, like going into a store. And that's how the, the Gospel of John presents oftentimes our faith in Christ. And then Paul would take up this theme, particularly in his epistles and, and beautifully all throughout Colossians. In him, in him, in him, in him, in him, in Christ, in him, in Christ, in him. How many times in him or in reference to Christ is the in him reference throughout the little epistle of Colossians would begin to give us an understanding of what. This is getting at. We live in a, a day in which we can take organs out of one person and put them in another person. And what happens then to the body happens to the organ transplant. We have a spiritual union with Christ. And as baptism is mentioned in verses 3 and 4, that is an operation of the Holy Spirit. It is a spiritual baptism and it has both a corporate truth and an individual personal truth to it. In the corporate truth, the spiritual union with Christ is a, a bodily experience. The organic metaphors of Scripture come into play here. The church as the body where Christ is the head. Organic. The church as the bride where she becomes one flesh with her husband. Believers are part of the body of Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, For we are baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit. And Jesus has a, a body. He has a physical body which is now resurrected and seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of God the Father. And he is there in bodily form. In fact, the astounding truth that Colossians says earlier from our text that we read is that in him, right now, is the fullness of all of the Godhead in bodily form. And the very next verse says, and we are complete in him. And there is this bodily aspect of our union with Jesus Christ. And every new believer becomes a part of his body. And everything that a believer experiences, he experiences as a part of that body. And whatever the head experiences, every part of that body experiences. So there's a corporate truth of a spiritual union with a bodily experience. But there's an individual truth of the spiritual union with Christ as a personal experience. The believer shares in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We are united together in Christ's death. When he died upon the cross, we were united together with him and we died with him. And somehow in this spiritual, mystical union, that is a reality and a truth, not merely a metaphor. It's not a metaphor at all. And we did not hang upon the cross in a physical way along with Christ to suffer the agony that he endured. As in the physical sense, Christ alone suffered and died as the substitute for his people. But yet mystically united to him when he died, we all died with him. Our old man, which was born in sin was then united with his body, and when he died upon the cross, we died with him. And Paul here, not speaking metaphorically, but in vital and real union with Christ, such that everything that Christ affected upon the cross, we share in. Sin was put to death. The body of sin was removed. The body of sin was removed in that baptism, yet united together with Christ in his death. The body of sin was circumcised from us. It no longer has the controlling power over us. It was removed as far as the east is from the west. Gone, gone, gone. All my sins are gone. Never to come back. The scapegoat on which the sins were imputed in the picture in Leviticus 16 goes and he never comes back into the camp. Never to be found again. Scripture adds in verse 4, not only do we die, but we are also buried with him. In baptism. And why is buried an important? If, if someone dies, what's the importance in the burial? And why does the scripture emphasize the burial? First Corinthians 15, I think the passage says there, and, and this is the gospel that Christ died according to the scriptures, and he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Therein is the summation of the proposition of the gospel. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary on Romans says the significance of the burial. He says, quote, the reason burial is an important step beyond death is that burial puts the deceased person out of this world permanently. A corpse is is dead to life, but there is a sense in which it can be said to be in life as long as it is around. When it is buried, it is removed from the sphere of this life permanently. It is gone. That is why Paul wanted to emphasize this finality in our being removed from the rule of sin and death. And that's why he emphasized we were buried with Christ. That old man has gone away. He is dead in Christ. It has been put in the grave, and when we were raised together in the likeness of Christ, it was not that sin that came back. It is gone. Our union with Christ guarantees everything our Lord purchased on the cross is a certain possession of all who are united to him by faith. When Christ was crucified, he satisfied God's righteousness. He secured forgiveness of sin and severed the connection with sin's dominion and its doom and its destruction. God's law no longer has a claim over us. Justice has been served. We have received the pardon for our guilt and We have complete and total forgiveness of sins. My mentor, Michael Barrett, says, quote, We have every right to face our sins and claim the blood of Christ to keep on cleansing us every time we need it. Because objectively, it has 
been once and for all removed. And the body of sin no longer has dominion or claim over us. The law does not haunt us. We have everything given to us in the united Christ. The body of sin, that old man of ours, has been circumcised. He has died. He is buried. He's been put away in the baptism with Christ in his crucifixion upon the cross. It has been permanently gone. But that is only part of the truth. We are also united with Christ's resurrection. Paul's logic of this passage is such that if we are united with Christ's death, then we are also necessarily united in his resurrection. There is no possibility for being one if not the other. In verse 5, then he says it this way, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also will be in the likeness of his resurrection. We, We have this grammatical construct here, The if-then kind of statement. The protestants, if we have been buried with him in baptism. It declares this truth. It can actually be translated with the word since. Since you have been united together into his death, then, which is the apodosis, it defines what the continuing inevitable experience is. If this is true then this is true. And since we have been planted together in Christ in his death, then we will necessarily and inevitably be united together in his resurrection so that when Christ rose three days later by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ in his death, you are also united together in spirit with his resurrection. If you have communion in the death of Christ, it necessarily means you have communion with him in the resurrection of life. And that's why this union with Christ has a newness of life, which demands a a life change. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 can tell us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. For our life is hidden with Christ in God, and when he shall appear, we shall appear with him in glory. Uh, I mean, the scripture just goes on and on. Paul would say, it is not I who liveth, but Christ who liveth in me. It is my life which is hidden in Christ who lives. And that's why he can always claim victory and never defeat. Because of our union with Christ, we also share with his ascension. When he ascended back on, in fact, we share in every aspect of Christ. His enthronement, when he seated, as he sits down at the right hand of God the Father and is seated there by the Father, seated and enthroned there at the Father's right hand, there you are enthroned with him. You are enthroned right now by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ in heaven. Ephesians 2, 6 says, He raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is not merely a prophecy of what will be, but it is something of a reality that is true right now. And it has far-reaching implications if we could but begin to begin to begin to apprehend a little of this truth by faith, it will revolutionize the way we think and live. But the truth is we ought not to think or we ought not to live any part of our life here without a consciousness that we are in reality there. Now, we must know our union with Jesus Christ by experience. We must have apprehended Jesus by faith. We must understand who he is and place our faith in him savingly and follow him and give him our lives and trust him fully for all that he has declared for us. And that is experientially being united together with Christ. 
But secondly, he wants us to reckon the truth of this union by faith. In verses 6 through 11, knowing, he wants you to know this, that our old man was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him, for the death that he died, he died once to, for all, but the life that he lives, he lives continually unto God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed into sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me show you how that passage works. First of all, he wants us, the structure of the passage, verse 6, knowing this. I want you to know, because right thinking produces right living, and you got to think right before you live right. I want you to know this. Verse 7, he says, for, that's a word of explanation. I want you to know this, here's the explanation. In verse 8, he then points the verb out of us believing. If we believe, then he's he's going to take us a little bit more in verse 9, knowing that, and he's going to explain it again in verse 10, for, I'm going to explain it. And then he's going to then give us an application in verse 11, now. Likewise, you also reckon. Reckon this to be true. I want you to know this, and here's the explanation. I want you to know this, here's the explanation. I want you to believe this so that you can reckon it to be true in your life. The term for knowing here is more than a head knowledge. It refers to this personal experiential knowledge of gospel truths. It's like a man who knows his wife experientially. We'll leave it there. But as we, as the bride of Christ, come in communion and union with Jesus Christ, our head and husband, it is this beautiful, intimate metaphor that we have upon the earth that shows us of the intimate oneness between Christ and his church. And it's this experiential knowledge. And we have to reckon that to be true. Because God told us it is true, we have to reckon it to be true. By faith. It is a way of thinking. It is really a worldview. It's the lens through which we are going to see the world, how we're going to view everything in life, and it is going to be an in Christ worldview. You must be in Christ and see through Christ and in Christ everything about us. You are seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus and it is an in Christ way of thinking and seeing the world. And what we are called to believe subjectively is a truth that God has proclaimed objectively. It is an objective truth that he calls you now to subjectively believe. Right thinking about the gospel produces right living. Christopher Ashe said in his commentary on Romans, quote, it is an exercise in subjective believing something to be true because it is objectively true. We simply, we are simply told to bring our thinking into line with God's reality. That's what the reckoning here is all about. Bringing our thinking into line with what God has told us to, is true. It's the reality. In verse 1 or verse 6, we have this union in Christ which destroys the body of sin. In verse 7, this union in Christ was then to free man from the power of sin. So that in the former, we have the freedom of the believer from sin's penalty. And in the latter, we have the believer's freedom from sin's power. Folks, in Christ, we are free from the penalty of sin and we're free from the power of sin. Because all this is true, he's going to bring it to a conclusion. Verse 12 says, therefore, that's a concluding word. I've said all this, now concluding. This is why I've said it. I don't want you to think that 
verse 1. Just because your sin abounds, grace is much more abounding, and therefore don't, don't, don't think that you can go on sinning, that grace may abound. Don't think that, don't have a mindset that, well, I'll ask God for forgiveness later, I know his grace will abound. No. That's wrong-headed thinking. Because lastly, in verses 12 and 13, we have to live out our union with Christ by obedience. You're only going to do this if you think right. That's why he went through the task of teaching us how to think right before he gives us the application. So many Christians get, get it backwards. They, they, they just want the 12 list of things to do. And, but it's right thinking. You get the thinking right, it's going to happen and emerge in right living. And now that we've been united together with Christ by faith, do you understand its implications? See, this is where Paul's going. Therefore, I'm concluding there is a way to live life right with right kind of thinking that produces right kind of behavior. And this is the application to life where all of this truth has been leading This kind of living does not come by willpower. It does not come by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It does not happen by self-discipline or more human effort. It only comes through faith experiencing Christ's life and power in your life. It is a supernatural power, but it is a supernatural power that God has lavished upon you in the Spirit. And his life, living in you experientially, appropriated by faith, is the power and the key to your sanctification. Faith is the necessary prerequisite for this gospel obedience. You believe and then you obey. When you're walking by faith, experiencing the life of Christ, it is impossible to yield to sin while at the same moment placing ourselves at the complete disposal of God. You think about that. Light and darkness cannot share the same space at the same time. Where grace has abounded over all of our sins, it is not true that we should all the more sin so that grace may all the more abound. God forbid. But that grace may bring forth her beauty and her glory in the lives of God's people to be free from the power of sin and live in the liberty as instruments of righteousness for God. That's where that was going. See, if you understand your identity in Christ... Who you are as a Christian. Who you are experientially united with. Then know that how God sees you at every moment in time of your existence from that point forward, he sees you in his son. God deals with you now on the basis of how he deals with his son. And oh, how the father loves the son. And because of your union with Christ, the father loves you no less. Therefore, you don't have to earn his love. You don't have to work hard to maintain his favor with you. It has been settled objectively once and for all. You have to declare it to be true because God said it is true. It has been settled. God is not one of those spinning plates that you have to keep going and working to keep the plate spinning, to keep balanced. You don't have to keep adding your effort to the whole thing to make sure that you're acceptable in the eyes of God and that you don't lose his love or his favor. Nope, because all of that is objectively true in Christ. And if your life is hidden with with Christ in God and he treats you and deals with you on the basis of his son, it's settled. Verse 13. 
Because of your union with Christ, all of our guilt has been removed. You don't have to live a guilty life. All, that can, all that's gone. I mean, objectively, God said it is gone. It's dealt with upon the cross. Do you believe it? Reckon it to be true. Because then you can live in the liberty of Christ. That's the point. All your sins have been forgiven. It's true. Do you believe it? Reckon it to be so. So that you don't live this life laden down with all of this heavy burden. All of the power that sin has over you has been broken. Now you can live victorious in Christ. You no longer have to sin. Now you will. I will. We don't believe in a a life that we can ever be completely sinless in this life. But the fact of the matter is, we don't have to. But our faith, oh, our faith. Would to God we'd, we'd believe Him more. Would to God we would declare this to be true more. Would to God when temptation knocks on our door that we would just be full of the Spirit and, and living and walking in Christ so that darkness cannot enter into our light. But because of our union with Christ, we have life. We have life. We experience His joy. We enter into His rest. We experience His glory and His resurrection. We are enthroned in Him. We co-reign with Him. We sit in the heavenlies behind the veil. We participate in heaven's worship. We are assured of everlasting life. We have a secure identity that will not and cannot be changed. We can feel secure in Christ in who we are. Who we are as individuals. Who I am as Marion. Who you are as as Keith and Larry and and Sam and Chris and, and George. You can be secure in that. Because you are in Christ. You don't have to be intimidated with any other person for the rest of your life because you are enthroned in Christ. And He made you and you're fearfully and wonderfully made the way He designed you. And He also saved you. And He cloaked you in His righteousness and He is now working with His Spirit to make you become what he has declared you to be in his sight. Righteous. Righteous. We have no reason to fear anything in life. We're safe in Christ. Neither death nor life or sickness or anything, neither principality or power or the devil himself can snatch you away or separate you from the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. Not a single thing ever. You never have to fear a single thing. As God honors his son, God honors us in Christ. What? God honors, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that you take notice of him. He took notice. That's who you are in Christ. He honors his people. He honors you. He cares for you. He loves you. He protects you. He provides for you. Everything that you need, you have. All of these things are true in Christ. Have a Christ, in Christ worldview. You have to to see the reality of what God has declared through the eyes of faith. And you have to declare it to be true in your life. To live in the liberty of which this is true. It is true because God said so. The question is, do you believe it? Reckon it to be. 
declare it to be true in your life because God said it is true objectively for his people. Now subjectively lay hold on that personally and individually for yourself. The blessing of our baptism is that it points to all of these truths and it reminds us of this spiritual and mystical union and who we are in Christ. That is our identity. We are gods. We have his seal upon us. It identifies us with his son. We've been bought with a price. We're not our own. We are God's property. And we are in Christ fully. We are a part now of enjoying the beauty of the Godhead which dwells in Christ bodily. And we are complete in him. So lay hold on these truths and all that it points to by faith. Believe it and reckon it in your life. Our gracious Father, we pray that you would bless us now as we come around your table and we reckon these truths that you have declared to us to be true indeed. We know that they are objectively. We pray that you would now give us the subjective faith individually to lay hold and appropriate these things with greater capacity, with greater understanding, with greater unity with the Spirit, and with greater understanding to obedience, with greater experience, with greater knowledge, with greater affinity toward your love and your joy. May we enter into all of these truths in a greater way as we trust these things to be true and reckon them that we would not live any longer to sin, but as instruments of righteousness unto God joyfully and with great capacity. May it be so, Lord, we ask for your spirit to bring it forth. In Jesus' name, amen.